This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the sixth episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for uh, subscribing and downloading. Today's guest, Erin Haynes, is amazing. She is a writer with the Washington Post, a special group of amazing writers over there called the 19th. She has a wealth of experience, been in the game of journalism over 20 years. She's going to talk to us today about the role that women play in the electoral process, diversity in journalism, black newspapers, the VP search, all of those amazing things. And Aaron is a good friend of mine and somebody that uh, I hope my oldest daughter reads as she continues to uh, mature and matriculate uh, to get the news from, because Aaron is just an amazing resource that we have. And I'm really, really proud of uh, the Washington Post and everyone else for giving her that opportunity. And, and please, she decided to join the Bakari Sellers podcast, certainly. Um, we've had a busy week in the news, and I'm looking forward to catching up with Aaron. But before I do, I wanted to discuss five brothers who've made the news this past week. Kanye West, Nick Cannon, Deshaun Jackson, Steven Jackson, and Chance the Rapper. I won't give Kanye any more attention, but I do think the other four warrant our attention and time before we dive into our episode. In case you missed it, Nick Cannon was released from his deal with Viacom CBS because of some comments that I'll just let you listen to for yourself. So then these people who didn't have what we had, and when I say we, I speak of the mm-hmm. melanated people. Right. They had to be savages. They had to be barbaric. They had because they're in these Nordic mountains. They're in these rough uh, torrential environments, mm. so they they're acting as animals. Right. So they're the ones that are actually closer to animals. They're the ones that are actually the true savages. Deshaun Jackson apologized for sharing on his Instagram stories a quote falsely attributed to Adolf Hitler that I won't repeat here. Stephen Jackson later defended Deshaun Jackson's comments by describing Deshaun's comments as quote speaking the truth. Chance the Rapper says that he trusts Kanye West more than Joe Biden to be president, the same Kanye that thinks slavery was a choice, and who in the midst of a global pandemic is still anti-vaccine. So first things first, brothers never quote Hitler. Your intent doesn't matter. 
What you meant to say doesn't matter. What you say after you quote Hitler doesn't matter. And when brothers quote Hitler, we can't defend that. To quote my brother Sean Puffy Combs, that's not black excellence. Second, Nick, Deshaun, Stephen, and Chance were all afforded platforms to fight for black people. When the conversation moves away from white supremacy and knees on our neck, both figuratively and real, we all lose. We don't need conspiracy theories to explain white supremacy. The hate and violence we've seen isn't because of mountain weather and a lack of sunlight and melanin. Nick, I'm looking at you. We've got to stop this hotep shit and leave it alone, fellas. And if Joe Biden is good enough for Angela Davis, he should be good enough for Chance the Rapper. The last thing I'll say is to echo John Legend, whose tweet in response to Chance's comments went viral. To paraphrase, he suggested that we all have to do our homework before we speak or we run the risk of losing or significantly diminishing our platforms and our impact and sidelining the movements that we all support. I just want brothers with platforms to know that I'm here for them. And I'm a DM away before you hit send. We can't do this ourselves. Our people deserve and expect better from us, and we're duty-bound to use our platforms to deliver for them. Conspiracy theories and anti-Semitic rhetoric don't move the needle for us. Let's do better and be better. And now on to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. First of all, let me just say thank you for coming on to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Aaron, you are an amazing friend, our good friend, our executive producer, Jared Lodho, reached out to you for all the great work that you're doing. So I just want to say thank you, first and foremost, for joining us on what I believe to be the sixth episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. And so thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You guys helped me to sound smart during the primary, so I'm happy to return the favor. (laughs) Well, first, the first thing I like to do is now you are at the 19th. Um, and you were at the AP recently, and everyone sees you on MSNBC. Talk to me briefly about the arc of your career and how you ended up where you are today. Sure. So uh, I have been in the game for longer than it looks like because, you know, melanin. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Hashtag melanin. Hashtag melanin. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'm from Atlanta and got my start in the black press in Atlanta at the Atlanta Daily World. Shout out to the Daily World, Auburn Avenue. But um spent most of my career at the Associated Press writing about Black folks, whether that was the Black electorate, the legacy of the civil rights movement, uh, HBCUs, uh, you name it. I was writing about that for a national audience and and really did that for most of my career because uh, I, I really do believe that race is the story of our time and really the unfinished business of our democracy. But, you know, about a year and a half ago, I um, started talking with my now boss, Uh, just about her vision for a newsroom that really centered women in politics. And this was a very exciting idea to me because I was covering uh, a primary that at the time had six women, uh, Uh you know, seeking the Democratic nomination for president. And so, uh, you know, it just felt very historic, very momentous. Uh, And also going into uh, the centennial year of the 19th Amendment, right? I mean, it just, it, it felt like an idea that was overdue, but also very urgent. And so while I had a job that I loved, I mean, my dream job, quite frankly, uh, being a national writer on race for the Associated Press, um, what I saw in the opportunity to to join the 19th was to really build the newsroom that I wished that I had always worked in, right? And to- What does that look like? What does that look like? 
it looks like a place where I can bring my full self and my lived experience to work every single day. Right. Like, I mean, obviously as a black woman, you know, I think and write a lot about uh, what it means to be black in America, but, but this job really has allowed me to think about what it means to be a woman in America, which frankly, I think as a black woman is a luxury. Uh, And that's something that I have learned even in the, you know, six months ish that we have been out in the world is that, wow, like I really didn't think a lot about that before because I was thinking so much about race from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed. So, um, what do you say to people who ask the question, why is an organization like the 19th still necessary? I know that that probably drives you crazy. Like why are HBCUs necessary or why is the NAACP necessary? So why is the 19th, uh, still necessary today? Well, I mean, I think it's most necessary because women are the majority of the electorate, right? Uh, but we don't, we're not talked about as if we are the majority of the electorate. We're treated like a special interest group in politics. Mm. And we know that the reason for that is that three out of four of the stories that are written in political journalism are written by uh, men and mostly mm-hmm. white men. Right. Uh, and so the news is already gender. Right. We, I mean, we know that, especially political journalism. Uh, we just believe that we should be approaching this in a way that says that all issues are women's issues. Right. And that women get to be rural voters, they get to be educated voters, they get to be interested in the Supreme Court, they get to be faith voters, they get to be Southern, they get to be Midwestern, right? Like, but that is not how we are treated. And, and frankly, you know, I went into this year, even before everything that has happened, right, the intersection of everything that we now kind of find ourselves in, in this election, like I went into this year believing that race and gender are not just a story of this election, they are the story. And so to be in a place where we can assert that, on a consistent and regular basis, um, I think is is to be doing work that is the most honest and accurate about who and where we are as a country. Let me ask you. Let me ask you to put your uh, your journalist hat on, but your analyst hat on as well. I know I see you sitting on MSNBC often. <laughs> there's a question that has been. We got to get you over to CNN every now and then. But there's a question that has been uh, in my this as as they say sizzling in my spirit for a long time. <laughs> And I don't, I don't have the audacity to believe that I know the answer to it. So while I have you here, it's not even on my uh, the the list of questions that that Jared and I came up with on a deep dive of who you are. But oh, okay. I, I want to take a minute to see if you can analyze or help me understand the central question to the 2016 election, which is why did white women leave Hillary Clinton at the altar? Why did 53 percent of white women decide to vote for Donald Trump? Can you provide some context or analysis to why that may be? Well, I mean, I think that what we know is that, you know, white women have not voted for Democrats in the majority in, in several cycles. I mean, white, and, and white so people, the fact, correct, yeah. correct. And and so the, the idea that every cycle we recycle white women and that voting block, right? They get to be soccer moms, they get to be They were grizzly, uh, they were grizzly bear moms grizzly, or something. Exactly. Something like that with Sarah Palin, I forget. Yeah. Um and, and yet like they are not voting in the majority for, for Democrats uh, year after year. And so they are not particularly reliable uh, as a voting, but in the way that black women are like, we know that, right? Like black women, 60% plus in the past five presidential cycles, you know, for the democratic candidate. Right. So, um, so yes, I think while the conventional wisdom was, Oh, well, there's somebody who looks like you on the ticket. Surely you will support that person. Right. I think that, that for women in general, in this country, when women have to make a choice between race and gender, they usually choose race. Black women do it mm. too. It's just usually that when black women do it, they do it 
in a way that um, in their impacts own. everybody, right? They vote for their community. They vote for them, their home household. They, they don't vote. vote for, they don't vote against their own self-interest. They vote for the country, right? Like, like, so, like, so your analysis that people literally, and I think this, I hope that I believe this to be true, but to, to kind of boil it down, people vote for race. And I guess this, we're generalizing here, but white women for this particular question vote for race, even against their own self-interest. Well, I mean, I think, I think they have identity politics too. And I, and I think that we have- Everybody has politics. identity politics. Correct. And I don't know why people, why, why, why do people poo poo? I don't, I don't understand why people attribute that to us and uh, black, us being two black exactly. folk here. Well, be, well, Bakari, because whiteness as an identity has not been a real thing for many people in this country for too long. We know that whiteness is an identity, right? Yeah. Uh, but many people, uh, and because just because white people don't think about what it means to be white or haven't thought about what it means to be white in America uh, does not mean that, that that is not real. So let's talk broadly about diversity in journalism. You've now been covering politics for almost 20 years. I ain't calling you old. I'm just throwing up the stats, right? You're not calling me old. And I, <laughs> I, I reject it if you, if you are. If you, <laughs> exactly. I reject it out of hand. Uh, how have things improved since you started your career in terms of diversity or have they improved? Well, I think I think uh, results have been mixed, right? I mean, yes, obviously, I have more company <laughs> uh, in in this industry than I did, you know, probably when I started. Especially in terms of, of uh, folks who cover race, um, black journalists who are who are focused on race and don't see that as a role that is necessarily pigeonholing them, right? But they see their lived experience as an asset and not a liability in terms of their journalism. That has definitely happened. Um, but I think that what is disappointing is, you know, when I started my career, I thought that I was going to be writing about kind of the vestiges of, of um, legal segregation in this country, yeah, right? Like yeah. the legacy of the gains of the civil rights movement, right? I mean, I'm from Atlanta. And so like seeing the fruits of, of folks' labor, um, you know, like a Martin Luther King, Andrew Young, Joseph Lowry, John Lewis, Maynard. like, like yeah, writing Ralph about David. that. Yeah. Exactly. was like a thing that I was focused on. But what I find myself focused on kind of in this past decade is the retrenchment of racism in this country and uh, um, what feels like a either a lack of or a loss of, of progress. Uh, a lot of those, those hard-fought wins that those folks worked for. And I will say in terms of journalism specifically, uh, so this is actually, last week I should have been with my colleagues who I love so much at the National Association of Black Journalists Convention, right? right. We were supposed mm -hmm. to be in D.C. Uh, with the National Association of Hispanic Journalists talking about this election, talking about everything. That didn't happen, obviously, because of coronavirus. But the other reason that that is sad is because this is our 45th anniversary. So it's supposed to be a big celebration of that. But also thinking about that 45th anniversary, uh, the thing about NABJ is that a lot of our founders are still around. And we get to talk to them, we get to touch them, we get to hear their stories about what it was like for them to do their job when they were starting this organization, right? And what I learn from them on an ongoing and consistent basis is that they even lament the idea that so many of us are writing about the same stuff that they were writing about, you know, half a century ago. That's a, such a damning assessment, and it's one that I find to be so true, because when I, when I talk about the progress in this country, I tell people that my father's 75, and I'm 35, and we have many of the same shared experiences. And, you know, this yeah. re retrenchment, as you called it, I think is the great word. I mean, 
So we, our generation, you and I, are stuck trying to make sure that their lives and their efforts weren't in vain, especially coming from Atlanta. I'm coming from South Carolina. We feel that, right. that, that special onus. You, you would know this better than any of my other guests, but talk to me about the state of, of Black-owned newspapers. Uh, is there still a such thing? Are they still, I mean, wh- where are they and can they be successful in this moment? Do we need them in this moment? We absolutely need them in this moment. And, and I'm so glad that you brought up the Black press because, you know, like I said, I got my start in the Black press and I now live in Philadelphia, as you know. Uh, and it has been really heartening for me to be in a city where the Black press is so robust mm-hmm. and where people really see it as a vital and trusted source of information, right? Like people subscribe to the Philadelphia Tribune here, right? They, they listen to Black talk radio here and, and, and they- um, And they shop at Black bookstores there like ask, Uncle Bobby's, oh et cetera. God. Yeah. Shout out to Harriet's. Oh my God, Uncle Bobby's. Harriet's, Shout Uncle Bobby's for sure. Definitely. Shout out to them for sure, um, because they have been a lifeline for folks, especially in this moment, who are looking uh, not only to educate themselves, but really to fortify themselves uh, in mm-hmm. this moment. So shout out to Black bookstores. Yes, but, but I mean, the Black press is vital. Uh, I mean, they have been a source of information because, you know, I'm not naive enough to think uh, that, that uh, every Black person is, is, you know, has downloaded the CNN or AP app on their phone and, is get, and, and that that is the main place where they're getting their information, right. right? In fact, the major- overwhelming majority are not getting their news from right. CNN, Fox, or MSNBC. They're getting their news from the Charlemagnes. They're getting their news from various podcasts. You know, Absolutely. they're getting their news from Facebook. So, and, and I think the Black press has a role, especially to fill that void. Absolutely. And so I think that in this moment, I mean, while people are finding things like black bookstores or other black businesses to support, like consider subscribing to your black newspaper where you are. I mean, they're they're um, still, uh, you know, hundreds and, you know, the National Newspaper Publishing Association, you know, look them up online and, and find the black newspaper in your community or, or in your hometown and consider subscribing to that because they, they do need us uh, in this moment. You know, the economic impact to them was already a lot, but I think even uh, in this moment uh, could be even more dire with, in terms of advertising revenue and that and, and the like, but like getting information out, especially to our people in the midst of these dual pandemics. I mean, that is a role that they played long before you know, we were in crisis uh, as a country around race. Absolutely. So I want to shift gears to the 2020 Democratic primary. You were with the Associated Press for much of the Democratic primary. What were your top takeaways from the primary and I guess, were you surprised at how the three black candidates, uh, and I get in trouble for this, four black candidates, Harris, Booker, Patrick, and Messam, were you surprised by how they were received by black voters? No. I mean, look, Bakari, this is probably going to be unpopular, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to put that out there right now. But like, I think that not just black reporters, but Southern black reporters had a very unique uh, and distinct perspective about what this election was actually about mm-hmm. that allowed us to see and assert certain things through our reporting uh, that other people just didn't see or didn't believe. And missed completely. Correct. Right? Like when I kept saying that Black voters were pragmatic in this election cycle, People didn't necessarily understand what that meant or they didn't necessarily agree with it or they thought it was a pejorative. It's not like black voters are discerning. They're sophisticated. Right. And they are certainly invested in the outcome of this election because they believe that this is 
a consequential election. And, and they were focused on ousting Donald Trump in November. Right. So they're trying to see who the, you know, the Democrat uh, is who would be best poised to do that. Right. And part of that calculation, to be quite honest, in their minds was, OK, who are white people going to be most comfortable with that we can get behind? Hey, so let me just say this. I, people thought that I was insane because I hearken back to my days on the Obama campaign in 2008 when I was a 2007, when I was a young state legislator. And we were talking about black voters and how and how and why black voters were not with Barack Obama to start. And the reason being is because they had two fears. One was a fear that they were going to kill him. There's an entire generation of black voter out there who still have seen their heroes be martyrs, right? Mm -hmm. And number two, to your point, they were afraid white folk weren't going to vote for a black man. And Iowa flipped that notion on his head. So Iowa gave him a lot of steam coming into South Carolina where we know history was made. When it comes to Kamala Harris, I, I always posited the theory that her campaign left a lot to be desired, but also the way that the press, this is generalized, not you specifically, but the way that the press covered a black woman running for president created this awful collision. Well, that was that was absolutely part of the equation, Bakari. And, I, and, and that was actually the first story that I wrote for the 19th was about the idea that as the lone black woman in the race, race and gender were a factor in why Senator Harris did not do as well in this primary. She was somebody who, I mean, after interviewing dozens of people um, for that story, I realized that, you know, she was somebody who entered the campaign as a front runner and got most of the baggage that comes with that and very few of the benefits that come with that, right? Uh, And, you know, we just have to ask why that is, right? She was a candidate that most of the people who routinely cover a presidential election, she came in a package that they did not recognize. Correct. Right? they never and seen so, it before. Correct. And so that, that I, I do believe that that had an impact. I do believe that. I mean, because you can talk about money, messaging, momentum, like all the things that can go wrong in a campaign, right? Her campaign wasn't any worse than anybody else's. Let me well, also say thing, that. Right? Like there were other candidates that had issues in those areas, right? And yet she was the one who was out before the voting even started. I know. You know? And, uh, and so uh, you have to ask why that is. Wait, let me ask you this question. Uh, how much of the reception uh, that Patrick, Harris, Booker, and, and as you hear, Sadie wants to ask you questions Sadie. too. Hey, Sadie, say hey. How much of their reception do you think was shaped by, for better or worse, black voters using the Obamas as a measuring stick for how we perceive black presidential candidates? I've always thought that there may be some unfair uh, kind of unrealistic expectation Agreed. we now put on people that is now the Obama's Obama shadow. Like you have to be Barack and Michelle, something that we'll never attain. Because as you and I know, when we go to churches in the South now, it's we have effectively replaced the picture of Ben Carson uh, that's in our church uh, reception halls with Barack Obama. So now it's Black yeah. Jesus, Martin Luther King, and Barack Obama. So yeah. it, it, tell me about the measuring stick that is now the Obama's. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I avoided that, to be honest with you, uh, during the primary. There's only one Barack Obama, right? Correct. Uh, there are only, uh, there's only one uh, Barack and Michelle Obama, uh, you know, trying to replicate that. Uh, you know, it's like, it, it's it's similar to how folks say, you know, who's the next Martin Luther King? 
that Martin Luther King was a singular figure in American history. Like that's not, that doesn't come along again. Um, and so, you know, but because he was the first, you know, to achieve this, now they're like, okay, well, who is the second, right? Because they're, I mean, being first for so many people doesn't matter until there's a second, right? right. And so, like were, you don't, we, but we, you and I were, ta- I mean, but you and I, with this Southern cultural sensibility, and you bring that to the newsroom often, which is why I love reading your work. You are on top of the game. I mean, if, if people are writing articles, I have to read them in the morning. It's Aaron Haynes, it's Ested Wesley, it's Perry Bacon. I mean, you guys are. But you, but you're writing. You, you bring this whole notion because you understand it's a social cultural sensibility that if you are the first, you can't be the last, right? And right. so, and so, I, I think that there is a lot, and I think that unfortunately, Cory Booker has had to deal with that shadow uh, of Obama probably more than any other candidate. Well, yeah, uh, because uh, you know, folks were drawing those comparisons even before he ran for president, right? Even before um, he ran for mayor, right? When he before he right. ran for United States Senate, excuse me, when he was a mayor. So, let me right. ask you this: If you're advising a black candidate running for president, just take your hat off, put on your advisement hat. I'm like, wait a minute, now, now I'm a strategist. You, you, now, got, you just you, gave me a new job. Look at that! But you're so talented, versatile. What's your advice to him? I mean, like, if you could sit back and and you could have any black candidate in a room in 2024, and and you're talking to him about what you've learned from covering the intersection of race and politics. What's your, what's your advice for? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't have any advice because I'm not dispensing that as a, as a journalist, but I think, you know, what, what I have seen covering um, black candidates, uh, especially in the past couple of cycles. And I'm thinking not just in terms of presidential, but I'm also thinking about gubernatorial, right. I'm thinking about congressional uh, candidates. What I have seen in folks who have been able to break through has been the, the folks who really are their most authentic selves yeah, are the ones who have had success, right? Like, like it, it and, and certainly it is not lost on me, especially if you are a black woman, right? Um, getting to a certain point professionally requires you to not necessarily bring your full self mm-hmm. to the workplace, right? In order to get where you, where you're trying to go. But that kind of, that kind of caution is not what voters expect when you are running for office. Like they want to know you. They want, they want to know who you are. And so I feel like you're speaking to someone that I know extremely well. One of the things that I would always talk to Kamala about was this. She would always see, and it, she and her sister always lived under this notion that let your work speak for you. Well, I think that's what a lot of women, a lot of black women certainly believe that like let the work speak for you. And that, that's, that really is not, that's not how campaigning works, right? Uh, and so, you know, you think about somebody like a Stacey Abrams, you think about somebody like an Ayanna Presley, you know, they were unapologetically themselves. And, you know, obviously Stacey Abrams came very close. She did not become governor, but, but was able to get more Democratic votes out of Georgia than anybody had ever done. Like, like I think her authenticity had a lot to do with that. Correct. You know, and I think even the black women who ran in districts that were not majority black. Yeah. Uh, you know, Lauren Underwood. Like, it, Lauren Underwood is one of the most dynamic. Donna Haley's another correct, one of those. Correct. Absolutely. L- Lucy McBath. Lucy, like, what so people, dope. Correct. What people said over and over again was, I, I feel like I know this person. Like that something about this person is resonating with me. And, and I think that that is because their lived experience was really kind of on display in, in the campaign in a way that even though they didn't have necessarily the narrative that folks were used to 
um, they were able to get to know that person. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert, and I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China. And full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So I know you think that South Carolina is probably the greatest state in the union. I mean, I think we can agree on that. I don't think there'd be any. Oh, sure. Sense. You just met, you just, you just, uh, Putting anything out here on me. <laughs> <laughs> I know you. I, I know you love Atlanta, but you recognize the import. Uh, I definitely love Atlanta <laughs> so much. What's your favorite? What, let's, let's before we get to my next question about South Carolina and politics. If I tell you that Outkast is the greatest rap group of all time, how would you respond to that? I would one thousand percent co-sign and agree with that. Um, I would encourage everybody to read the stories that I wrote about the best weekend in the history of Atlanta, perhaps, which was the anniversary of uh, Southern Playalistic a few years ago. Uh, it was a three-day tell, weekend in Centennial Park. <laughs> it was magical. Outcast was performing against the backdrop of the city. It was amazing. I was transported. Pretty sure I had an out-of-body experience. Um, yeah. No, I mean, like, their, their ability... Like, I mean, Atlanta was already... Like when they came out, like we were about to get the Olympics. Like Atlanta was on the cusp of being so so deaf. The city was that everybody loves so much right now. Oh my God, Jermaine Dupree so so deaf. You trying to get me on a tangent? That's a totally different podcast that we sh- that we should be doing. Um, we will. No, I, I expect but, to have you on again, so we can just do we can just listen, do Southern music in the next. Just plan one. that. Just just plan for us to talk about Outkast and Freaknik for like two hours. Um, and BMF and BMF because we can't have a conversation. Oh. Big Meech, absolutely. Um, oh, uh, and, and, no. big, and T is out of prison, so shout out. I don't know if he listens to the Bukhari Sellers podcast, but shout out to T Flinnery, uh, who is out of prison Coronavirus right now. got him up out of this, so yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, wow. But no, Outcast. I mean, it could not be, it cannot be overstated, like their impact on the culture and what they did for our region and for my hometown in particular. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So as we go on that tangent, because I... Atlanta is my my second home. I love it with all my heart. Let, let, I want to get to South Carolina, and you know, many journalists, uh, many uh, national political journalists. You can read that as white. They they misread us, and they always overanalyze the import of New Hampshire, Iowa, um, and Nevada. 
Why do you think that so many journalists get the importance of South Carolina wrong? I mean, is it a misunderstanding of black voters or the role of black women in the electoral process? Yes. (laughs) I mean, look, (laughs) and I told I told editors, uh, you know, really what I was looking at uh, last year in terms of the polling, um, a couple of things. One, who was polling consistently with black voters uh, last year? Joe Biden. Which mm-hmm. tells me, like, until until Joe Biden's support among Black voters slipped, as far as I was concerned, anybody who was writing about his campaign languishing or being, you know, DOA, didn't know they, they didn't understand the dynamics of of, of this primary, right? Uh, and two, um, the primary wasn't real until we got to South Carolina. Like, it, I, it just was until Black voters en masse weighed in. You didn't have a nominee. I was sitting on the I was sitting on the you know the uh, my CNN panels and. We went through this phase where all of a sudden Bernie Sanders became the front runner. And I'm like, how are you a front runner when black folk ain't vote yet? And I, I sat there or and Pete, I said or it. Pete Buttig- or Pete Buttigieg. Like, oh, yeah. It's like, I'm sorry. Where, where, who, has, who has black support? Like, this is the base of the party, which we say and assert, right? Like, I've been say, saying this over and over again, that black women were the backbone of the Democratic Party, right? So, like, how can you... Until black women specifically, but black voters broadly have weighed in, uh, you don't you don't know who your nominee is. South Carolina was the catalyst for everything that came after, and how you get to Joe Biden as the presumptive nominee weeks ahead of schedule. How how differently do you think things turn out if South Carolina was first or is first in the future of the process, um, especially in twenty twenty? What what happens differently? Do you think the race just kind of decentralizes and black voters, if black voters have a voice earlier in the process? Well, I think that everybody in terms of the political journalism class is forced to pay attention to black voters that much sooner. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually pushing on the platform committee uh, myself and and Grant Home. I I don't know if we're going to call it the Grant Home Sellers or Sellers Grant Home Proposal. Probably Grant Home Sellers. I like the way that sounds. But we're going to push for uh, Iowa, Nevada, South Carolina and New Hampshire to all go on the same day um, mm-hmm. to make them all four. They're very small states. Uh, you can cover them geographically. They're not. They're inexpensive states. They get you the wide swath of diversity because right now you have people caucusing, which I believe caucuses to be anti-democratic. But you have people caucusing in lily white states like Iowa. I love Iowa, but it's still a lily white state. And then going to New Hampshire. And I don't think that's representative of the future of the country or even where we are today. Well, I mean, good luck with that. Because if you know anything about the history of the New Hampshire primary, you know, you have got a fight on your hands. if you think And the Iowa are. primary. That's why I'm saying they can all go first. You know, that's my, that's my, that's my goal. So that you, you will be in LA one day and then you'll be eating barbecue, or excuse me, Vegas one day, and then you'll be eating barbecue in South Carolina the next day. I just think that that's a great, I think you, I think reporters would love that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Keep me posted. Uh, see, look, ye of little faith. Let's talk about your recent Washington Post piece. I loved it uh, uh, for that interview, for the black women you interviewed for that piece. What does Joe Biden paying black women, what he owes them look like? So what is, what is him paying back black women for getting him on the, over the hump? What does that look like to those women? Yeah. So, I mean, and by the way, your piece was very comprehensive and everything that you do. I know I'm raining down praise and accolades, but I do want you to know that I share that in all of my chat groups. And your piece was exquisitely written, as always. I'm a post it with this uh, with this podcast as well. So everybody else goes and reads it as well. Well, I appreciate that because, you know, what I again, 
I have been saying since probably since the 2016 election, definitely said it in 2018 and have been saying it, uh, you know, through this primary and will say it through the general election, you know, that, that black women have long been the caretakers of this country and their vote is an extension of that. Uh, but I felt like it was time to do a story that kind of pulled all that together for people so that they understood what black women's contribution has been, especially looking at this in the centennial year of the 19th Amendment, right, which we know gave white women access to the ballot, but was a right that, that black women had to fight twice as hard for, right, and did not get until the Voting Rights Act was right. passed uh, decades later. You know, but even before we were free, even before we had the right to vote, like black women have been helping to shape and, and, and hold this democracy accountable. And so we are now, I feel like, uh, maybe finally at a point where there's a recognition of that in our politics uh, and that the Democratic nominee may be aware of that and understanding that he will need to govern in a way that recognizes how he got to where he is and where he may be uh, come November 3rd, right? Along those same lines in your conversations, what has seemed to matter more, though, an agenda for Black folk, a Black woman VP, or a Black woman on Supreme Court? Because the VP promised, he only promised one, a Black woman SCOTUS nominee. The Black agenda is still very much uh, TBD, and he wouldn't commit to even a woman of color in his public statements. Um, so which one in your conversation seems to be more important or are people just focused on getting Donald Trump out the White House? Uh, well, I think like most Democrats, like, like black women are, are definitely singularly focused on ousting Donald Trump in November. But I mean, we know that black women are not single issue voters, right? We know right. that. Right. Uh, and so, you know, black woman VP is not going to be the one thing that, that gets, you know, that motivates them. Black woman on the Supreme Court is not going to be the one thing that motivates them. But I think, you know, what I'm hearing from black women voters is that they plan to hold him accountable. You know, they're not just showing up on Election Day, but like if he is elected as he governs, like I think that they're not going anywhere. Right. Like, I mean, you saw you saw in the story, Bernice Scott is like, look, I plan on having a direct line to this man to say, what about what you told me when you were running? Right. I mean, but Bernice uh, Scott had a direct line to she had a direct line to Bill Clinton. So she's kind of mm -hmm. used to this. And Bill Clinton played that game appropriately. Barack Obama did not. Barack Obama was somebody who did not necessarily have that those same type of uh, cordial relationships with grassroots stakeholders throughout the country. So, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, just to, it, from your conversations, you know, what happens if it and it very well could be. You know, uh, uh, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, how do mm -hmm. from the voters you've talked to, how do, how do people respond to that? Listen, I mean, I've heard from voters who are open to Warren um, because of, of the way that she talked about systemic racism as a presidential candidate. Right. They felt like she was somebody. Uh, and, and I think that this is also a testament to uh, many of the black women who were on her campaign in decision making roles mm -hmm. who helped to kind of shape policy. Uh, on that campaign and, and helped her uh, really to articulate the connection between class and race and inequality. Um, and so, you know, for the black women who were open to her, but who maybe didn't necessarily feel like she was viable during the primary, some of them say that they, they would, she, she, it, to the extent that they are open to a white woman on the ticket, right? An all white ticket. 
she is uh, the person whose name comes up most often uh, I, to, for, with the black women that I talk to. I hear, I hear that and agree. And then I also hear that there is this sentiment that, I mean, here we are again, where we have qualified black women, the Val Demings of the world, the Kamala Harris of the world, the Marsha Fudge. And again, just like newsrooms, just like workplaces, you have another white woman who kind of beats them to the punch, um, sure. especially and, for and this. I, that's- that's just it. I mean, you. I mean, you got six six black women at least in in the mix on this, you know, so called shortlist for the beef stakes, All of whom are qualified and talented and have the resume to do this job, which you know is unprecedented. And this is, I would argue, um, you know, probably one of the more consequential uh, picks for vice president than we have seen in in right. modern politics, right? But uh, but I mean, to, to our earlier point in Politico this week or the, over the past week, you had the glowing article about Tammy Duckworth. And then you had, you know, the Val Demesang shit article from the same, you know, publication. And you're like, you know, here we go again. You have a glowing article about Tammy and now you have Val Demings as a cop who can't get right, right? So we have this, this very interesting dynamic in the way that black women, even at the highest level, I mean, they're talking about playing for keeps at the highest level of American government, still get disparate treatment. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I, 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 I think that's, I think that there's definitely some of that. Um, but then you also have, I mean, look, uh, Karen Bass, Congressional Black Caucus Chair. Her name is certainly out there, and and, and, and have been have been seeing, you know, some really interesting coverage around her. I mean, you just saw um, the op-ed calling for Valerie Jarrett, making the case for Valerie Jarrett. I mean, I, I think that what that speaks to is that this is still a, a decision that is very much up in the air. Uh, you know, Joe Biden has said that he's going to um, decide by August 1st, uh, although we don't know if that means that he will be announcing on August 1st. Yeah, but, you know, but it was, know he was originally he was originally deciding by the first week in July. Um, the July 4th weekend was original. Right. And now we're back in August. I, I just I want to beat Donald Trump. Worse than anybody. I also want to have diversity in my ticket. And I'm also excited about my daughters being able to look up on the screen in, in January at a swearing in and be able to see somebody who looks like them. Like when they pick up uh, the Washington Post in the 19th, they're able to see an amazing writer who looks like them. Thank you for coming out today, Aaron. Every Thursday, our episodes, we have a rotating list of our friends. I've had Tiffany Cross, uh, Jason Johnson. Um, we have a very special guest next Thursday, but then we'll have uh, Michael Harriet the Thursday after that. And we hope you come back. We want you to be a part of our guest on this show. We we have great listeners. And uh, our next episode, we are just going to talk about the evolution of Atlanta. How about that? Absolutely. I'm in. I'm in. Consider this my RSVP. <laughs> I love you. Let me know if I can ever do anything for you. Have a blessed day. You know uh, I will. In Philly. Keep it up. <laughs>